0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I will be your charming, ruggedly handsome host as we dive into a new topic. Now, the last episode, we talked about a specific tribal group called the sentinelese they're one of the few remaining uncontacted tribal groups around the world they are actually considered probably the most isolated tribe in the world but this week we're going to kind of look at it in a more general sense we're going to talk about the politics of uncontacted tribal groups we're going to do a little bit we talk a little bit about some of the other groups that exist out there but also kind of how they fit into the world Uh, what we do about them, why so many times talked about that we should never try to contact them, and kind of where they fit in the international relations uh, schemata. So uh, let's go ahead and just dive right in. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about just some of the other groups that exist. So last week we did the Sentinelese, which is a group on the North Sentinel Islands off the coast of India, but there are plenty of others. In fact, there are an estimated 100, give or take, uncontacted tribes around the world. And these tribes are mostly what you would consider indigenous groups. So you have a lot of indigenous rights activists that get involved with these types of, of tribes. Most of these tribes nowadays, like I said, there's in the neighborhood of 100, maybe a little over 100 uncontacted groups around the world. Most of them are in two areas. Uh, there are a lot considered to be in the Amazon in South America, and then a lot in the New Guinea area, which is a large island kind of off the coast of Australia. Now, there are others on various islands. As I mentioned, the Sentinelese last week talked about those. They're on actually one specific island off the coast of India. But mostly these groups have become a real uh, source of fascination to modern society or to contacted society. And so you frequently will have people become very curious about them, whether they're missionaries wanting to spread uh, religion to them. Last week, we talked about the The Christian missionary who went and sought out the Sentinelese and ultimately uh, was killed by them, but he did actually spend like a a day or two with them before they ended up killing him. And you'll also frequently see things crop up about like adventure tours that are specifically designed to search out these uncontacted people groups and that's become incredibly controversial and uh, usually is condemned for a variety of reasons. But let's quickly run through a few of these other groups that just exist out there. And as I said, there's probably over 100 right now. So we're not going to spend a ton of time going through each individual one, obviously. But I do want to list... Uh, a few of the others that exist, just so you know what's out there. And as I go through this, it's just important to remember that these are entire communities of people that have very little knowledge, if any really, of the outside world. So they don't know anything about technology, cars, the radio, internet, uh, iPhones, computers, but even down to things like indoor plumbing and electricity, and some of these things that we often take for granted as well. And So there's entire communities that exist, kind of roaming their little area, whether it's in the Amazon rainforest or on some islands, essentially living kind of a hunting and gathering lifestyle, or kind of some of them a Stone Age lifestyle just in order to survive. So essentially they are what you would consider truly off the grid, Uh, but not only just off the grid, but almost to an extent unaware of the existence of the grid. Now, none, none of these groups are completely unaware that other groups exist. I mean, obviously, part of the reason they've managed to remain uncontacted is because they want to be. They've had you know violent or unpleasant encounters with other groups, whether it's modern society or other tribes. And so they intentionally stay off the grid. But this does make them largely unaware of what the outside society does have to offer. Uh, so let's talk about three other groups. As I said, last time we talked about the Sentinelese, uh, so I want to do three others uh, this week. And then after this, we'll get into kind of the politics of it. So there's a group called the Korowai. Uh, The Korowai are a group living on that New Guinea island off the coast of Australia. They are jungle dwellers. And actually, we haven't even known much about this group since the 1970s. Um, Really, this is when we first came into contact with them, it's thought they are one of the largest uncontacted tribes in the world with their numbers in the neighborhood of three to four thousand people. So it's actually a pretty large group to be quote unquote uncontacted. Now, they kind of stand out for a couple reasons. As I said, their size is one of them, but they also have a couple other things which cause them to, to stand out. Uh, one is that they are what you might consider like tree dwellers. They climb trees very readily. They're very adept at it. Uh, and frequently you'll see them living up in trees, which is kind of an interesting and an unusual cultural thing or tribal thing. Uh, we also know that they, or we believe that they practice cannibalism, which is one of the few tribes in the world that still does this, or at least I should say they, they have in the recent past. It's hard to know what happens nowadays, but there are some traditions that when a, when a person becomes um, more or less possessed, and kind of to use a Western term, the only way to, to get rid of the possession and stop it from spreading to others is to kill the person and eat them. And so we do have some reports of cannibalism out of this tribe, but it is thought that's probably going away Uh, or waning on this, but the Korowai are, like a lot of these tribes, not a very long-lasting people group. It's very rare for people of this tribe to live past middle age, uh, mostly because they don't have any of the outside medicines, treatments, things to protect against wounds, protect against disease. They don't know much of anything about sickness or illness or germs. And so you frequently will see, a lot of times, any sort of unusual death. Be kind of attributed to the idea of possession. Uh, and so this is where they get the with what they call the, the kakua, which is essentially, like I said, possession of a sort. They kind of treat it like like witchcraft. Uh, but they are kind of this really interesting, large kind of jungle tree dwellers in Papua New Guinea, and that makes them fairly unique. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump to the next group. Um, there's one called the Mashkapiro. The Mashca-Piro are kind of a nomadic group in the Amazon rainforest. Now, they are in the Peruvian part, so they're actually in Peru, but kind of near the Brazilian border. So they are, you know, very similar to a lot of groups in that kind of Brazilian rainforest area. Now, they are thought to be much smaller than the Coruai. The the piro are probably a neighborhood of about 800, give or take, people. But uh, this is mostly because they underwent back about a hundred years or so ago, maybe a hundred and, Thirty years. It was late late eighteen hundreds. Um, there was a man by the name of Carlos Fermín Fitzgerald. He was um, say like like a tycoon in the rubber industry, and he basically hired a private army and went in and slaughtered this people group so he could gain access to the trees in that region because they were rubber trees, basically. So he could he could manufacture rubber out of them. And so this tribe used to be a lot larger, but essentially got slaughtered by this this man and his private army so they could get access to rubber. So it's kind of a sad story there. But nowadays, we see the Kopiro basically living in kind of the forest area. So they use a lot of bamboo, which they use to make spears and things like that. Like a lot of these groups, they are noted for being violent when coming into contact with anyone that they perceive as a threat from an outsider. Uh, so they have been known to attack and kill outsiders. But they do seem to have, unlike a lot of these groups, they do seem to have kind of more of a, a peaceful is not the right word, but kind of a tolerable, attitude towards outsiders in a lot of cases uh, unless they are perceived as a threat but this probably is because they have had contact with other indigenous groups in the area so they're not as unaware of the outside world as as maybe some of these others and so in fact what we've seen is there have been people who have reported being approached by Mashku and trying to trade with them now, this is a group that is seemingly undergoing a massive food shortage right now. Um, and so they have been known to offer all kinds of things, including trying to offer up some of their people, like offering their women as slaves or, or offering their babies in exchange for food and, and other types of supplies, which kind of tells you that um, they are probably seriously struggling right now. Now, this is one of those few people groups where we have actually seen photographs of them posing with outsiders. This is one of those people groups that I talked about kind of a few minutes ago where a lot of these kind of adventure tours try to seek out uncontacted groups. And so there have been some very kind of sketchy, safari-like tours that have been, gone out to seek these people. And so a handful of photographs have cropped up of outsiders posing with the Mashco Piro. Now, the third group I want to talk about is a group called the, the Fletcheros. This is also a group in Brazil. Uh, they're probably most well known. Or they're they're called the Arrow People. Arrow is in like you shoot a bow and arrow. Uh, this is an, a very isolated tribe in an area of Brazil called the Javari Valley. Now, there's not a whole lot that's known about them, uh, but what we do know is that they are very skilled with bows and arrows, and so they have been photographed on many occasions, like from, from planes and things, with bows and arrows in hand, often firing arrows up at planes, firing arrows at outsiders, and notably the arrows are poison tipped. Uh, so they're launching poison arrows at anybody who's seen as an outsider, kind of encroaching on their land. and this is a group that has been under fire recently in Brazil, because the Brazilian government has kind of slashed the budget to the agency in their, in their government that was Tasked with protecting some of these groups, and so we have seen like mining companies and things kind of step in in that vacuum, and a lot of the Flecheros people have been killed because of it. There was actually a mining group just recently that confessed to to essentially killing and butchering about ten of the these arrow people and stealing what they had from them, so like jewelry and tools and things like that. Now, those are the three groups I want to just touch on, but just keep in mind there are lots of others out there. There's over a hundred. There are mostly, there's actually a map you can find online if you go to like Wikipedia or something where they kind of track where they are. Uh, The grand majority of them are in the Amazon and then on Papua New Guinea, but there are a few that kind of crop up elsewhere, Uh, Southeast Asia, as I said, the the Sentinel Islands. There are some questions about uncontacted tribes in Africa. We're not 100% really sure on that, but mostly we're talking about Asia, kind of the Oceania region, which is like those islands off the coast of Australia and South America. Now, you might ask, well, what about the the Amer- like the North American continent and while there aren't any groups really thought to be still uncontacted today there there have been some in kind of more recent history uh, the last group of kind of uncontacted people groups in North America were the the lacandon people who were really only contacted in kind of the early part of the 20th century so the, about 100 years ago um, there was a, a man by the name of, of Ishii who was a member of a tribe called the Yahi tribe, which is a Native American tribe in the United States. And he was really thought to have lived pretty much his entire life outside of a, American culture. But in 1911, he, he was about 50, give or take. He kind of came out of the his uncontacted nature out, out of the wild uh, in California and kind of joined society. Now, the, the North American uncontacted tribes like this, largely were seen as being very aware of kind of the European colonization, the American society, uh, the civilization that kind of developed out of that, but just preferred to avoid contact, any sort of direct contact. Now, the Le- the Lacandone people, as I mentioned, were kind of the last ones in North America. Mostly they were down in Mexico, kind of a um, maybe descendants of the Mayans essentially, Uh, in kind of the Yucatan Peninsula, who had kind of fled Spanish colonization and moved into the the jungles there. But they essentially made contact in the early 1900s, 1920s, give or take. Now, it was a few decades before they really kind of fully emerged, but they were probably the last uncontacted tribe in North America. Uh, It's thought there aren't any more nowadays. All right, now we're going to take a short commercial break here and then we're going to jump in on the other side and talk the politics of this, kind of how these uncontacted tribes are dealt with, how they should be dealt with theoretically, um, but also kind of how they fit into the world's political scheme and just kind of the mystery of, of them and how they interact and where exactly they kind of land in international relations. Uh, But so stay with me and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute or so after the commercial break. Thanks for tuning in and I'll be back in a minute. Hey guys, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that commercial break. I'm going to go ahead and just dive right back in. We've been talking about uncontacted people groups and I want to spend the rest of the episode kind of talking about where they fit into the international system and kind of the politics of it. So uncontacted people groups are really source of fascination by a lot of the world. And this has driven a lot of people to try to contact them, as I've mentioned, from like missionaries to adventure tours. But this has caused a lot of problems. And this is one of the reasons that a lot of governments seek to ultimately protect them and why a lot of researchers will say we shouldn't even try to, because what we've seen is that with these uncontacted tribes, one of the side effects of not being A part of modern society is they don't have any sort of resistance to a ton of diseases that we frequently don't even think about as being deadly in today's society like the flu or measles much less anything worse and so what's happened is we have had situations where entire populations of uncontacted tribes uh, have just been decimated by disease Uh, we've seen this in the Amazon on multiple occasions but just as one example, there was a people group called the Nahua who were in the Peruvian Amazon kind of in the early I said, 1980s or so and Shell, the oil and gas company, was going into this region looking for oil, basically. And so they had kind of a first contact with this tribe as part of their exploration, because they were kind of clearing paths into rainforest, and they came across some previously uh, inaccessible areas and had what you would call first contact with the Nahua tribe. Now this Nahua tribe ultimately was devastated by this first contact. Epidemics raged throughout the population, things like pneumonia, Cropped up, and estimates said that say that something like sixty percent of the tribe died. I mean, just like they'd been poisoned almost. And this is something that happens over and over again, uh, whenever we come into contact with these uncontacted tribes. And so it's been a huge risk. Uh, we even see this, you know, going way back to the discovery of America. I mean, we talk about you know Columbus coming over here and the the Europeans kind of colonizing the area. But one of the unexpected consequences, unintended, I should say. Uh, was that disease kind of raged rampant among some of the native populations here and ended up killing a lot of people, Uh, even went through gifts. You know, smallpox was kind of the big one, but you hear about others as well. And so this has led to a lot of people uh, basically arguing that we should stay away from these uncontacted groups. Now, this has led to some controversy because there are others who basically argue that uh, contact from the outside world Uh, even like accidental is going to ultimately be inevitable as the world becomes more and more globalized, more and more people. And they argue that it's better to initiate contact slowly, building up kind of a a long distance type friendship and using kind of controlled meetings with medical personnel on site to help create some of these connections that then therefore, if an epidemic or disease breaks out, they can help. And so this is something that's kind of led to a lot of controversy as they go back and forth about whether or not we should should contact them. But ultimately what happens politically is that usually the, the government of the countries in which these tribes are located end up being kind of quasi-protectors of them, whether it's the Sentinelese in India or all the tribes in Brazil, Peru, Papua New Guinea, and some of these other places as well where we see them. But this has led to some issues. Uh, I mean, up until recently, Peru actually kind of denied that these groups even existed. They didn't really see... Any benefit and in, in talking about them, and so they kind of deny that they even had uncontacted tribes in their territory in their country. Now, the other thing that's taking place too politically is, as I kind of hinted at with with Shell Corporation, is encroachments into territory in terms of going after resources, whether it's lumber or oil or gas or any, anything else along these lines. And essentially, these tribes are kind of being forced to migrate uh, year by year, pushing them further and further away out of their like native areas and so this is also kind of really cutting down on their ability to survive and this is also leading to tribes dying out but because they're kind of say, quasi-protected by countries like Brazil, Peru, India. This is something that has longer, or said larger implications, because it leads to questions about what happens when contact does take place. Uh, As we talked about last week, there was the murder of the Christian missionary, an American Christian missionary, by the Sentinelese people, and they've essentially decided that they're going to let, you know, his murderers, you know, go free because it's it's not worth the effort to try to to prosecute them uh, for essentially what they saw as a, an outsider, you know, trespassing on their territory. But ultimately, what this means is that c- countries like Brazil and Peru and India and others need to probably be more proactive about protecting these groups, because no matter how isolated uh, the Amazon might, might seem or the, cent- the Sentinel Islands might seem... You know, or any of these other places, Papua New Guinea might seem isolated groups aren't cut off from mainstream society, especially the ones who are not on islands. On the islands, it's a little bit different, a little easier to protect them. But on, like I say, in the Amazon, there's pressure from outside forces almost constantly, whether it's mining, logging, uh, drug trafficking, nar- narco trafficking, other external threats. And the kind of hands-off, let's just leave them alone philosophy that's been employed probably is not something that's going to work long term because at the end of the day, the external threats are likely to to survive and to, to win out just as things continue to move more and more global. Uh, and this may cause some of these people groups to go extinct. And so taking a more proactive role might be kind of in the future of, of some of these groups. Now, there are other kind of uh, non-governmental agencies that deal with this. Uh, you have a group called Survival International. It's a charity essentially dedicated to helping indigenous people groups, quote, defend their lives, protect their lands, and determine their own futures. And so this is a, an organization that basically has dedicated itself to helping protect. So they're kind of an international NGO of sorts or an IGO that has dedicated their lives to protecting people groups like the Sentinelese or, or some of these others in Brazil, Papua New Guinea, etc. In addition to these kind of non-governmental agencies, you also have uh, government agencies. I talked about the states themselves, but there's agencies within the states. As an example, Brazil has an entire agency called FUNAI, uh, It's F-U-N-A-I, which basically does the same thing. It's dedicated to protecting the culture and the interests of Brazil's indigenous populations. Now, Brazil claims there are something like 100 plus tribes in Brazil alone that may be probably a, a high estimate, although it's a little unclear whether or not they're talking about uncontacted tribes or just tribes in general. But there are you know dozens in Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, all across South America is probably the biggest place. And so you have all these South American countries that are working together, or I should say should, should be working together to help protect some of these hunter-gatherer type populations that are still more or less living in the Stone Age or you know before any sort of real agriculture has taken place. But this policy of protection is not how it's always been. Actually, before Funai was set up in Brazil in 1987, the Brazilian government had tried essentially to forcefully, uh, aggressively relocate tribes who, who they saw as being kind of in the way of any of their businesses or commercial ventures in the Amazon rainforest as they tried to exploit some of the resources there and so this actually used to be the policy back you know before 1987 but it has shifted as we've started to understand more about why these tribes are are isolated and the consequences of contacting them Uh, and at this point really the the continued isolation of some of these tribes is mostly due to the tribes themselves while government policies are essentially dedicated to protecting them they are also available if the tribe decides they want contact. And what we've seen is they really don't. And that makes a lot of sense when you really think about it, because whenever we do come into contact, there's either violence, tribes getting wiped out uh, through violence, or disease. And so those who are still alive have probably developed kind of a justified fear of being discovered that probably has perpetuated across different generations in these tribes. But this means that any sort of observation and um, caring for these tribes and just protecting them has to be done at a distance. So we frequently get images from like helicopters and things like that, planes that kind of fly over any sort of l- long distance photography, basically. And most of the images that, well, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the images that we get from this show that kind of hostility towards outsiders as a lot of times you frequently see them aiming bows and arrows or throwing spears at the planes, at the cameras. But as you've probably picked up on over the course of this episode, the term "uncontacted" is a bit of a misnomer. It's likely that I mean even the most isolated tribe in the world has had in, in some sort of interaction with outsiders in some way, whether it's face to face or through you know, artifacts of some kind, you know, planes flying overhead, tr- trading between tribes, where they pick up on kind of modern items that kind of have been passed down through trade but uncontacted is still kind of the preferred term, the legal term here. Really what we're talking about are unintegrated cultures, unintegrated tribes. And kind of, as I've said, that's mostly intentional on their part. Uh, They want to remain isolated. And so because of that, a lot of times outside society, modern society has chosen policies that allow for that. Now outside of the legal sphere, there's actually a lot of fascination here in other ways as well. Uh, uncontacted tribes have ways of life that are entirely self-sufficient, more or less, uh, very diverse, and they are are really fascinating in terms of like what we can learn from them as well. Uh, there's a tribe called the Awa in the Brazilian Amazon that essentially uses the resin from a very specific tree to make fire, and they are, are very adept at using or this resin. Uh, they also have very advanced building practices. They build a house in just a few hours out of like leaves and tree trunks and vines and these types of things. Uh, we've seen other tribes, the, the Kawahiva, which are Indi- an Indian tribe that builds very intricate ladders that they use to kind of climb up trees and collect honey from hives of bees and things like that there's one man who's actually known in, in brazil he's called the last of his tribe it, it's thought that he is literally the last of his tribe uh possible his people were wiped out by miners or loggers or something and he's literally the only one left and so he lives in essential like true isolation but we've kind of been able to observe him from a distance as well and we see you know, some of the ways that he hunts you know digging deep pits with you know sharp spikes at the bottom to capture large prey and these types of I say like technology is not the right word, but advancements in, in hunting that he has developed that are, are very interesting and I don't want to say unique is probably not the right word, but rich in in culture and kind of how he's developed, and how his tribe developed, but also how he's developed on his own, living in, in true isolation. There's an acute understanding in a lot of these groups of kind of the natural world. Uh, through botanical wisdom that they have gathered, unique solutions that they have come up with to living self-sufficient, living off the land, sustainable living, and in fact, a lot of drugs that are currently used in Western medicine have roots in kind of some of the the botanical principles of tribal people. Now, again, not some of these uncontacted ones, obviously for reasons of uncontacting, but uh, they have you know roots in other types of tribal people groups. There may be a lot of secrets that these uncontacted tribes have developed and protected over the years that we can learn from them as well over time. Now with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, kind of close out the episode. If you're at all interested in kind of getting involved in this type of work, I'd encourage you to reach out or to look up the survival International group that I talked about—they are probably the most well-known, the largest, and the most well-equipped non-governmental organization in the world that has dedicated themselves to to this cause. You can help them in a lot of variety of ways, from donating to taking action. And you can all find that on their website. Again, it's uh, SurvivalInternational.org. SurvivalInternational.org. Uh, so you can check that out as well. I. Would encourage you guys to look these people groups up. I mean, there's all kinds of groups. There's some really fascinating ones. I've mentioned the Elwa. They're considered probably the world's most endangered tribe. There's about a hundred of them still living like completely nomadic lives in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, You have tribes in in Papua New Guinea that talk about you know isolated tribes, very remote groups way up in the highlands that are essentially living off of growing sweet potatoes and, and pigs. You have the Kawahiva. I mentioned them in Brazil. They're frequently called the short people because of their short stature. Sometimes you'll hear them called the redheaded people because they have kind of unusual shades of, of red hair. Um, they're the ones that develop those very complex ladders up in trees. Uh, you have the Ayoreo, uh, which is a Paraguayan tribe that's very isolated in the, the Chaco, which is the largest forest in South America that's not the Amazon. And countless others around the world as I said mostly Amazon area but you also find some in Asia uh, Oceania and New Guinea there's thoughts of groups existing uh, in Africa although that's a little unclear at this point Uh, but with that we're going to go ahead and close out the episode I hope that was interesting for you guys this week and I will be back with you guys with a new episode soon Uh, thanks so much for sticking with me and if you're interested in getting in contact with me there's a couple of different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, hit that follow button. i will be happy to talk with you more about this or any other conversation you might want to have. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook under my author page, J Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I have two out right now, one called Precipice and one called Splintered State. They're both mystery suspense novels. I uh, do great on Amazon. They've got great reviews. Please go check those out as well. Now, if you're interested in getting in contact with me for the purposes of advertising or to support me, support this podcast in any way, uh, you can find my Patreon account online uh, or you can just reach out to me if one of the other ways and I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. Uh, Thanks for tuning in this week and I will talk to you guys soon. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney and I am out in three, two, one.